Well, let's uh, pray for the offering and pray for our time in the Word. Heavenly Father, we ask now, Lord, that uh, all that is given today in the agape box in the back, that, Lord, it be used for your kingdom and for your glory, for the ministries that this fellowship is involved in, be it Ohana, Bayamba, the radio ministry, the other ministries, Lord, where we are reaching out to the community around us or ministering to people within our fellowship. We pray you would use it, you would bless it, and use it for your glory. We pray also, Lord, for those, uh, again, who are sick today. I know there's many who are sick right now. We just ask for your healing touch upon them. Lord, we ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. It's always good if the pastor would turn his phone off. What do you think? That's somebody who doesn't know me that calls me at 10 o'clock on a Sunday, obviously. All right, turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11, continuing our verse-by-verse study through uh, the book of Daniel. If you're new here to Calvary Chapel, we just go verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book, right through the whole counsel of God. We don't skip over anything because nothing less than a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. We started on uh, Thursday nights in Genesis. If you come this Thursday, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 5, so you can read ahead. We started in Matthew on Sunday mornings. We taught through the entire New Testament. We just finished it a couple months ago. It took us 10 years. And now we, I took the time to, since we went through Revelation, to go teach through Daniel because of the, prophetic, the prophecy that ties in so closely to Revelation. When we finish Daniel next week, Lord willing, we will go back to Matthew and start again the New Testament so you can, again, start preparing for that. All right, Daniel 11, and these la- the last three chapters of Daniel. So the first six chapters of Daniel is really a history lesson in the life of Daniel, though there is prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. And so we see Daniel, this young man, was ripped from his home, carried off into Babylonian captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar, And they were taken away into captivity because they had dishonored God and got caught up in idolatry, and God took them away into a foreign land. We saw that Daniel purposed in his heart as a teenager to not defile himself, to honor God. And so we always think of Daniel in the lion's den Well, he was in his 80s. We won't see Daniel in the lion's den in his 80s if we don't see Daniel standing for the things of God as a teenager. And so as we get to Daniel 7 going forward, it's all prophecy, now, prophecy is, can be one of two things. It can be foretelling of truth, or it can be foretelling, speaking of things that have not taken place. And we talked about this last week, if you were here last week. I told the message last week, just as the Bible says. And in Daniel's, in these last, in these two chapters, mainly just in Daniel 11, there's 135 prophetic promises in one chapter, and every single one of them was fulfilled. So in one verse, you might have 10 or 11 prophecies in one spot. That's Daniel 11 is as prophetic the chapter as there is in the entire Bible. And it's been said it's one of the toughest uh, chapters to understand. So we're trying to take our time as we go through it. Now, the prophetic things, we're going to see some more of them this morning. We're going to see a man by the name of Antichus Epiphanes, who is a type of the Antichrist. He's going to be a man who has a lot of the attributes of the Antichrist, and we're going to see that uh, this was written, chapter 11 was written around 536 BC, and we're going to see that some of these prophecies are fulfilled in 150, 140 BC. So 300 plus years later, we're going to see some of these prophecies being fulfilled, and they've been fulfilled already. Now when we get to verse 45 forward, or verse 35 to verse 45 in this morning's text, It's prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet. So if God has fulfilled 135 prophecies in verse 1 to 35, what do you think the chances are he's going to fulfill the prophecies in verse 36 to 45? It's 100%. And so we're going to spend a little bit of our time looking at Antichus Epiphanes, a type or a picture of the Antichrist. And then we get to verse 36, we're going to look at the Antichrist. And we're going to look at some of his characteristics and you know, when I, when I prepare a message, my heart is always to give you something you can take away. That's why I do an outline. And I want it to be applicational. And here's the thing, we should be Christ-like, but we should not be anti-Christ-like. Amen? And we're going to look at some of the characteristics of the Antichrist, and my hope and my prayer would be, if any of these describe you, stop it. Amen? 
And all of us will have a few of them that will get in our kitchen a little bit, okay? And so as we're going to look at attributes of the Antichrist, I pray that we would recognize that this is what happens when somebody is driven by the flesh, who's possessed by Satan, and those certainly should not be attributes of born-again believers in Jesus Christ. Amen? So if you have your outline, grab it. Last week, we talked about just as the Bible says, and we looked at first that mighty men uh, and great nations would rise and fall. We saw that in the beginning of chapter 11 and verses 1 through 4. Alexander the Great was prophesied of, and again, just as the Bible said, his kingdom came and went. Uh, Xerxes, the Persian leader who later would marry a woman by the name of Esther, we see him being prophesied of, his kingdom came and went. Then we saw that great families rose and fell as well, and treaties were signed and broken between these families, and it was prophesied, and exactly the way that it was prophesied, it happened. And then we finished last week with 130 years of a perpetual war between the north and the south as they kept fighting with each other. And who was right in the middle of every single war? Who was it? Israel. So the north was Syria, the south was Egypt, and there were different kingdoms that were taking over and they were always fighting with each other and Israel was stuck in the middle. Guys, there's kind of nothing new under the sun. Amen? Israel is still stuck in the middle. Israel, the size of New Jersey, is the focal point of the entire world, even right now. And it's ground there that seems so important and significant because God said it would be. Amen? And by the way, if you're new to this church, we're pro-Israel because God's pro-Israel. Amen? So we're going to pick up there in verse 20, if you have the outline for this morning. I titled the message, The Spirit of Antichrist. The Spirit of Antichrist. It will reign for a time. But in the end, God wins. The spirit of the Antichrist is reigning on the world today. The Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And right now, even though God is in control and the devil can't do anything apart from God's gift, you know, allowance to do it without it coming through the hand of the Lord first, we know that right now Satan is the kind of the king of this world. And you can see it by what people chase after and where their priorities are and what their passions are. And as believers, we're, we're aliens here. We really should be foreign to this place. We're in the world, but not of it. We're to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And we're called to be different than the world around us. And we don't follow our gut, and we don't follow the culture, and we don't follow the world. We walk empowered by the Holy Spirit following Him. Amen? And so if you have your outline, grab it. And so there's just two points, and you're going to see a lot of bullets down there after the second one. But four and five from the previous... Uh, outline that I gave last week. So the spirit of Antichrist will reign for a time, but in the end, God wins. Number one, mighty men with the spirit of Antichrist will fool many, many with their flattery and claims of peace. We're going to see the Antichrist, a type of the Antichrist in Antichrist Epiphanes, and he's going to raise to power just like the Antichrist will over 2,000 years later. What he does is he comes on the scene and he's flattering. He's a politician. Shocker. And so they come along, and he's going to be charismatic, and he's going to be able to draw people's attention. This is both Antichrist, and it's also the Antichrist himself. And initially, the people will join him, believing he is the answer. And then after a period of time, they will realize they've been duped, and they will fall into the trap of recognizing what has taken place, especially the Jews themselves. Now, we're going to also see in this morning's text, and I want us to be mindful of this, this chapter is written to the Jews. Why is that? Because we won't be here during after the rapture. Amen? So the people that need to understand who the Antichrist is, while it's educational for us, it helps us better minister to other people. Thankfully, we'll never meet this guy. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. But the good news is, even if we were to meet him, we know one who's greater. And God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. Amen? And we don't need to be fearful of the world or the things that are going on in it. So the first thing we're going to see is mighty men with the spirit of Antichrist will fool many with their flattering claims of peace. And again, what are we seeking? Flattery of men or faithfulness to God? Do you want to be, do you want to be famous with men or faithful to God? Do you want to be well-known by the world or just known by the Lord? Amen. And then number two, or actually number five here, I should have changed the numbering. That's what happens. Okay, number two, number five, the Antichrist, Satan's man, the last king of this fallen world. He's referred to in Daniel 7 as the little horn of Daniel. 
He's then referred to as the prince to come in Daniel 9. He's called the beast in Revelation 13. And we're going to look at his character, and then we're going to look at his battles. So the first portion is going to be the character of the Antichrist. It's interesting. In the Bible, there are 15 qualifications for a pastor, but it should be the, the desire for every believer. These are minimal qualifications for a pastor, but should be the desire of every believer. And there's 15 qualifications, and one speaks of gifting, and 14 speak of character. God cares far more about our character than how gifted we are. Amen? When I look for pastors, when we ordain people, we look first at their character. I'd rather have a godly man or a godly woman of character that has to develop the gift they're using than someone who's really gifted that struggles with their character. And so we're going to see the Antichrist character just written out in spades. And as we go through it, my prayer is that we'll we'll be convicted by it if we have any of these Antichrist-like behaviors in our own life. So let's begin there in Daniel chapter 11, picking up in verse 20 where we left off last week. And so it says there in verse 20, there shall arise in his place. So the previous king again has been struck down, and there shall rise in his place one who possesses, imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Now, what I love, many things I love about these prophecies we're reading is they're very specific. You know, people will say they prophesy things or they read their astrology, you know, you're going to meet a stranger tomorrow. Well, what are the chances of that happening? (laughs) You know what I mean? Tomorrow you're going to eat lunch. Wow, that's prophetic. No, look what it says here. There's going to be a man who is going to take the place of the previous king. And after Antichus was replaced, he's replaced by a tax collector, and his name is Seleucus Philopator, and he reigned from 187, or he, he was a part of the kingdom from 187 to 170 BC. But he becomes king, and when he becomes king, he starts taxing the daylights out of Israel. And he starts taxing the people heavily. But notice what it says here. He taxes the glorious kingdom, that's Israel. But within a few days, he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Guess what? He was destroyed, not in anger or in battle. He was poisoned. He did did not go out and fight in a war. He did not die in a battle. He was not stabbed to death. And guess what? This was written over 250 years before it happened, and it happened exactly the way this verse says. Guys, the Bible rocks, amen? When people say the Bible is just written by men, and I love when they had this guy say, there's 500 contradictions in the Bible. Show me one. Here's my Bible. Show me one. Oh, there's 500. Show me one. It should be easy to find one. I don't need five. I don't need two. Give me one. Show me one. Yeah, exactly. Somebody told you there's 500 contradictions. By the way, there's 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents in three languages over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions. How is that possible? Because God wrote the book. And when we read these prophecies, it should excite us to know just how in control our God really is. Amen? He has seen the beginning from the end. Nothing surprises God. And so this new king arose. He did not last long. He taxed the people greatly. Somebody poisoned him, and he died. Now he's going to be replaced by a guy far worse. His name is Antichus Epiphanes. Look at verse 21. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. So this man, Antichus Epiphanes, he named himself Antichus Epiphanes. Epiphanes Epiphanes means glorious one. My name is Dave the glorious one, but I am not full of myself at all, right? And the people, the Jews started calling him Antichus Epiphanes, which means crazy man. So he was saying, I'm the glorious one. They're like, no, dude, you're the crazy man. So he's a vile person, but notice what it says at the end of that verse. He shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The word there, intrigue, literally speaks of someone who is a smooth talker, who is great at manipulating people. And he's going to come in and he's going to speak in such a way that he's going to draw people 
unto himself. They're going to be intrigued by his attitude. He'll have a program of peace. By the way, he came in to reign in 175 BC. Again, this is written in the early 500s. So 300 plus years later, this guy's rising up as the new king, and it's being written about in detail in this book right here that we are reading this morning. The Bible rocks. Now, he didn't use terror to gain power. He used flattery, smooth promises, and intrigue. And the word intrigue in Hebrew means slipperiness and fine promises. So notice what it says here in verse 22. And with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Antiochus mounted several successful military campaigns starting in 172 BC, and Antiochus ordered the murder of the Jewish high priest. His name was Onias, and he called, he was called the prince of the covenant. And what does it say there in that verse? Also the prince of the covenant. He will be broken and also the prince of the covenant. He had the high priest put to death. Now, why would anybody have the high priest put to death? Because they don't want people looking to the Lord. They want people looking to themselves. So the high priest was the one who would go in on the Day of Atonement and make the sacrifice, go into the Holy of Holies. A priest's job is to intercede on behalf of the people with God and then on behalf of God with the people. He's an intercessor. He's an intermediary. So this man comes in and he takes over through flattering words and he has people following after him, but a short three and a half years later, he's putting the high priest to death. Now keep that in mind when we get to the Antichrist, because he is going to reign for three and a half years in a peaceable way, draw all people unto himself. After three and a half years, he's going to proclaim himself for who he really is. He's going to want them to worship him. He's going to proclaim himself to be God, and it's called the abomination of desolation, and it's at that point that they will all turn against him. So Antiochus while he's not the Antichrist, he's certainly a type of the Antichrist. Now, anti doesn't mean the opposite of Christ, though it could. It means instead of Christ. It's something in your life that replaces the relationship you should have with the Lord. And so the Antichrist in, uh, the, that we will look at later, and now Antichrist Epiphanes, are taking the place of the relationship that people should have with God, or attempting to. So instead of God. So Antiochus wanted no part of worship of the true and living God. He thought murdering the high priest would put it at an end, at least hinder it. You know, the enemy always tries to kill those or destroy those who it thinks will draw people to the Lord. But here's the reality. You can't stop God. Amen? And the ultimate defeat of Satan is what he thought was his ultimate victory. And that was the cross of Calvary. He thought by, you know, turning the people against Jesus and crying out for his crucifixion, that when Jesus was crucified, he would have won the battle. But we all know that that's why Jesus came, was to go to the cross, to suffer and die in our place so we might have eternal life, to die as if he lived our lives so we could be rewarded as if we lived his. He came, he was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And so Satan thinks he has a plot or a plan, but God in the end always wins because God's will is always done before it's over. Amen? Well, here's Antichus doing the same thing. I'm getting rid of the high priest. I'm going to bring about my will and my way. But the reality is God is in control. Verse 23, and after the league is made with him, that's a covenant with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall act deceitfully. About this time, there was a power struggle over who would rule Egypt. And Antigus Epiphany's father, Antigus the Great, had sent his daughter Cleopatra to marry the king of Egypt. We saw that last week in verse 17. And the struggle of Egypt is now between Cleopatra's son, two sons who are Antigus Epiphany's nephews. And so he's going to come in and deal treacherously between them to try to overtake them both. So he's, again, he's going to be deceitful. He's false, he's treacherous, he's subtle. And then it says there in verse 24, he shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of, of the province, and he shall do what his fathers had not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them plunder and spoil and riches. He shall devise his plans against their strongholds, but only for a time. So not only is he, does he flatter people and is he smooth talking, but he's going to bribe them. 
He's going to come in and bring money and bring spoils of war and use them to bribe the people in Egypt to move in the direction that he wants. Gee, I wonder if any politician's ever done any of that stuff. It's just the world we live in, and it's tragic, and there's nothing new under the sun. Amen? And again, we know that there are good politicians, but not a lot. And we need to pray for them. Can I get an amen to that? We need to pray for them. We need to pray for those who desire to be faithful. But here we just ha- he has a plot. He's a politician ahead of his time. Verse 25, and it says there, He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south and the great army. That's Egypt. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Antichus is plotting for power. He looted the richest Egyptian provinces to use the money to make bribes. And now here in AD 170, he'll come up against Egypt to exert authority over his nephew. And notice what it says there in verse 26. It says, yes, those who eat the portion of the delicacies, that means the rich people, shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. So in AD 70, or BC 70, excuse me, he's been reigning for five years. By the time he gets to this point, he flattered them all for three years. He got everybody to line up behind him. And then all of his treachery comes out. All his bribery comes out. He's a deceitful man. He just used flattering words to get what he wanted. He told people what they wanted to hear. He was a charismatic man. He could command the room. And because of that, people just willingly followed this guy. And his plan was always to deceive, to steal, to destroy, to put himself in power, and to rule and reign above everyone else. And again, sadly, that's a picture of many world leaders today. They will tell people what they want to hear and they'll, to get their vote or to get their allegiance, but all along they've got another plan. And you know what? That's exactly what the enemy does. He'll tell you what you want to hear. He'll bribe you with the things of this world, but it's all stuff that's perishing. It's all stuff that's passing away, and it's all stuff that will not be uh, anything that you'll be blessed by in the future. So Antichus went in battle against them, but he was stopped by one of his nephews, and those who share his delicacies will destroy him. So these were guys that he was eating with and dining with, and he strikes out against them, and then we see that, the, that he's, he's taken down. Despite massive efforts and epic battles, he did not stand, and his army was swept away. Now, we're reading all of this 350 years before it happens, and when you go grab a history book, When you go and look at writings of Josephus and people like that, you go read it and you look at the Bible and you look at what happened 350 years later and it's just perfect all the way down the line. Literally, history book and the Bible. By the way, the best history book ever written is the Bible. Amen? And so you read this and guys, this should encourage you. This should strengthen you. Yeah, this story isn't great. Antichus Epiphanes was an evil and vile man. But guess what? The Bible said there was a vile man coming, and when he came, we're not surprised. And guess what? Because we see Antichus Epiphanes so clearly described, we should be, when we get to the next portion of this chapter, we should be really clear in understanding who the Antichrist is going to be. Now, again, as believers, we don't need to worry about it in one sense, but we should be forewarned so that we can forewarn others. Amen? And we see those attributes in other people today in there being a type of the Antichrist. Look what happens here in verse 27. It says, Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for at the end there shall be a time, the appointed time. So here's what happens. They're going to come together to form a treaty, and they're both going to lie through their teeth to each other. The Bible tells us this 350 years beforehand. Guess what? They came to a table together. They bargained together. They lied to each other. They deceived each other, just as the Bible said. You know, the two Egyptian nephews of Antichus started plotting to work against Antichus. And his word was meaningless. His treaties were worthless. The Bible tells us that Satan is the father of lies and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so when you are lying, you are being Satan-like. And when you tell the truth, you are being Christ-like. Amen? 
We live in a time today when the truth is more rare than it should be. The truth is something, by the way, if you just tell the truth all the time, you never have to remember what you said. Amen? You never have to cover the last exaggeration with another one. Just tell the truth. And you know what? A clear conscience is a soft pillow. You know, you sleep well at night when you just tell the truth and do the right thing. Guys, when you honor the Lord, when you obey his word, you'll have a fruitful and a blessed life. You will go through trials sometimes because the Bible tells us that we will. But the difference is we'll go through trials because we're obeying God, not because we're in rebellion against God. Amen? Give me all the trials you want to give me as I obey him. I do not want to deal with the consequences of my own sin. How about you? So here we see the deceitfulness of Antiochus Epiphanes and his nephews as they're lying to each other. And again, we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know God act like they don't know God. We shouldn't be surprised when the world acts like the world. No one's ever been lied to by someone trying to sell you something or anything, right? Nobody ever, people don't, don't you know, use trickery and things to get over on people. We live in a world today that does that. And they do that because, again, they're of their father, the devil. It's the spirit of Antichrist. As believers, that should not be so of us. Amen? Tell people the truth. Be faithful to your word. Be men and women of godly character. Now watch what happens in verse 28. While returning to his land, this is Antichrist, with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So here's what he does. Antichrist was commuting back and forth between Syria and Egypt, and he kept causing grief to the Jews. He's going right through Israel each time. He's, in Syria, he's going back and forth, battling with Egypt and crossing in and out of Israel. So one of his times through, he decides between battles, this vial would attack the land, the people, and the temple of Israel, and he had a great hatred for the Jews. Now, one of the, one of the greatest examples of the spirit of Antichrist is anti-Semitism. And when you see types of the Antichrist throughout history... People like Stalin and Hitler, did they, have, did they have a hatred for the Jews? Hatred for the Jews. What's going on with Palestine right now? Hatred for the Jews. Wherever you stand with that, if you're standing with the Palestinians, you're on the wrong side. Pastor Dave getting political. Guess what? I believe what the Word of God says. Do we love the Palestinians? What's the answer? We love everybody. But guess what? It's not surprising that why, why do so many people hate the Jewish people? I never thought I'd see campuses in our country at this day and age where you've got thousands and thousands and teachers and everybody that won't, won't say that anti-Semitism is wrong. You know what that is? That's spirit of Antichrist. But it shouldn't be surprising based on everything else they're teaching in these colleges these days. Amen? Amen? And so it's very clear. And so he has anti-Anticus anti, epiphanies. He hates the Jews. By the way, they're not doing anything at this point. They're stuck between two battles. They're being peaceful. And now they're going to be attacked simply because they're God's chosen people. Look what it says in verse 30, verse 29. At a point in time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Now, is this being specific here? Ships from Cyprus. Oh, something will happen. No, ships from Cyprus, 350 years before it happened, written down shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved, and return in rage against the holy covenant, and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsook the holy covenant. Here's what's going to happen. He's in a battle against his enemies, but when he gets outnumbered, he takes it out on the Jews. He gets attacked by his enemy. They're overwhelming him with their navy, Cyprus. And so what does he do? He goes and takes it out on the Jews, again, who had nothing to do with it. It's interesting. In 168 BC, Antiochus uh, invaded Egypt once again, was met by the Roman council, by a man by the name of Gaius Papillus Laonis, and Gaius demanded that he leave or be attacked by Rome. The story is that Antiochus, so he goes into this battle, they have a great navy, he's not going to be able to win. So he literally stands him in a circle, this is in history books, and they, wrote a, they, wrote a, they drew a circle around him and said, before your feet hit the ground, you better decide if you want to attack us or you're ready to go home. If you want to attack us, we're going to smoke you right now, basically. And Antiochus goes, I think I'll go home. And on my way home, I'll beat up those poor Jews because they're in the way. And that's what happens. Guess what? The Bible rocks. Amen? 
And I'm not saying his behavior is good. It's not. But isn't it amazing how specific the Bible is? So the ships of Cyrus came against him. The Roman fleet sailed to Egypt to help uh, influence Antiochus. And Antiochus was so mad that he'd come all the way to Egypt for nothing that he took out his anger on the Jews. He killed between 80 and 100,000 Jews because of what happened that he did not win the battle in Egypt. He took it out on God's people. Amen? And we live in a world right now that there's one group of people in our country that you can pick on all you want, you can curse all you want, you can say all the bad things that you want, and who is that? The Christians. And as Christians, you know, we don't, we don't overcome evil with evil, we overcome evil with good, and we should be kind and loving and gracious, but do not keep your faith to yourself. The only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people. And people need the Lord, and we need to stand for Him. By the way, they can't threaten us with heaven. What's the worst thing the world could do to us? It's the best thing that could happen to us, amen? Close your eyes on earth and open them up in glory. Don't live a reckless life. Live a glorious life. Honor the Lord in all that you say and do. Now notice what happens here. So he he attacks the Jews. He kills between 80 and 100,000 Jewish people. Again, Antichrist Epiphany is very much a picture of the Antichrist. Begins in peace and then turns to anger and battle, and then wants to rule and reign, and wants to be in a position of great authority. Then it says there in verse 31, and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and the place, place there the abomination of desolation. So here's what happens. He's going to go into the temple, and he's going to take everything away for them to worship the true and living God. He's going to remove it all. And then in its place, he's going to, it's called the abomination of desolation that will be fulfilled by the Antichrist. But Antichrist Epiphanes goes into the temple, takes a pig, which is an unclean animal, right? Now, when, you make, when they made sacrifices, they would use firstborn spotless animals, lambs, goats, bulls, right? But Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so a lamb is a picture of our Savior, he goes instead with a pig, which is considered in those days an unclean animal. Thank God for Acts chapter 10, rice, kill and eat, we can eat bacon. Now, in those days, it was an unclean animal, and he takes that animal, slits its throat, and pours its blood out on the altar. Again, an altar where only the blood of a, an animal made sacrifice that pointed to Jesus Christ. So what he did was, instead of something that pointed to the Lord, he takes something that is ungodly and puts it in its place. So it's called the abomination of desolation. So he not only kills 80 to 100,000 Jews, he goes in and makes worship impossible, destroys the temple, takes away the things that are needed for sacrifice, and then defiles the temple. This guy has such a hatred toward God. And boy, we see that today, this hatred toward God. Our God's name is blasphemed. It's, it's used as a cuss word. People mock the Bible. They mock the word of God. They mock the God who created them. And here we see Antichrist Epiphany. is a very clear picture of the coming Antichrist. This is the abomination of desolation, much like the Antichrist will do, as we will see in coming verses. Look at verse 32. It said, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Now, this should be a word of encouragement for us. Notice what happens. Those who stand against God, he flatters them. People that mock God, he he encourages them. He blesses them. He flatters them. And then those who stand for God, though, at the same time, God will do great things through them. Now, this is in no way a a legitimate comparison, but in a small way, what took place during COVID, when Home Depot could be open, and the pot clubs could be open, and liquor stores could be open, but churches were told we had to close. So they're flattering all the stuff that's ungodly and trying to shut down what we're called to do as believers. Now, most of you know our church, they told us two weeks for the curve, that's as long as we stayed out and we started having church. We caught a lot of flack from other pastors. We lost our building. That's why we meet in a tent now. Because we were meeting in a building where the landlord panicked 
and kicked us out of the building because we continued to have church. Guess what? And I've said this before. I don't care what happens in this nation in the future. We will have church every Sunday until Jesus Christ comes back. Amen? We're not going to do what... Now, do we honor the, the, the laws of the land? Yes, we do, until they tell us to disobey the law of God. We obey God, not man. Amen? Now, drive the speed limit. Pay your taxes. Be a good citizen. But if they come in and tell you, we're going to take your Bible away. No, you're not. You can't talk about Jesus anymore. We'll keep talking. Can I get an amen to that? But this is what was taking place. He was flattering those who cursed the things of God, but notice those who did stand up while as many as 100,000 had died and the sacrificial system had been taken away. And there were those who continued to stand for God. And when they did, God did great things in them and through them. Notice it says there, in verse 33. And those of the people under many days, they shall fall by the sword and flame by captivity and plundering. These Jews who refused to give in to Antiochus, there was a man by the name of Mattathias Maccabees. You ever heard of the Maccabees? Fathers of five sons refused to do what Antiochus said and ended up killing Antiochus's representative. Then he and his sons fled into the mountains and began the famous Maccabean revolt. Many of them died. The revolt lasted for some time, and that's where the celebration for Hanukkah comes from, from that whole Maccabean revolt. And that period between the Testaments where many suffered for their faith in God, there were those who still stood for the things of God. Look at verse 34. And then it says, Now when they fell... They shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. Some people who joined the Maccabees weren't sincere and ended up betraying them. So some of those people that went with them initially saw the great might of the enemy and they went over to the enemy's side. And sadly, some Christians, their faith has been hampered by listening to what the world has to say, by being drawn away by the culture. You know, and by the way, as Christians, you never want to say, follow your gut. No, we don't follow our God. We follow the Holy Spirit. Amen? Well, just do what you feel like doing. Do what's best for you. You know, live your truth. No, not live your truth. Live His truth. Can I get an amen to that? And so here's what's taking place is there were those that went with them initially, saw it was going the other way, and they betrayed those who were standing for the things of God. And then there, verse 35, and it says, And some of those of understanding shall fall, to refine them, purify them, make them white until the time of the end, because it shall be at an appointed time. Some shall fall to refine them. You know, as believers, the Bible tells us in James chapter 1, can all join my brethren when you fall into various trials, for trials produce patience in the perfecting of our faith. Trials are something that as believers, it doesn't say if you will go into various trials, it's when. And as believers, we go through trials, and trials are not something to be bummed out by, but to be recognized as an opportunity for us to grow spiritually. And the reality is that the place we grow the most is when we're going through the most difficult times. Can I get an amen to that? So it's when we're in the times of difficulties and trials, when we can't fix it on our own, it's then that we become most desperate for God. And by the way, that's a great place to be. And everyone in the Bible used mightily suffered greatly. You cannot find one example anywhere in the Bible of somebody used mightily that didn't suffer greatly. And I'm not talking being a martyr and walking around, oh man, I'm just suffering for the cause. No, we have the joy of the Lord, but we're going to deal with suffering sometimes. Amen? And this suffering is for but a little while, it says in 1 Peter chapter 5. The suffering, the trials of this life are temporary. They'll all go away when we get to heaven. Some of them will go away here. Amen? Most of you know my 28-year-old son died 29 months ago. And when my 28-year-old son died, I mean, I'd still to this, yesterday, I have days. I still have days. Yesterday was a day, for whatever reason, my son was on my mind a lot. And I, I wept most of the day. I miss that boy. Man, I miss him. You know why? Part of me died with my son. He was my youngest. We were very close. We spent five, six hours a day together. He lived in our house. We played on the church softball team together, and now he's gone. Now I know where he is, because heaven is better. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, amen? But you know what? In the midst of, those, of that grieving, in the midst of those great trials, do you know what? I feel comforted by God. 
because he does not allow us to walk through these trials alone. I can't imagine living through this if I didn't know the Lord and if I didn't know where my son is. Amen? So God uses even that, though, to give you compassion for other people that lose children. Now the sheriff's department calls me when someone loses a child, and I'm calling them back. You know, I've had several happen in this last month. I get a call from people, and they're like, hey, can you talk to this person? And, and again, I've trained for chaplaincy. I'm not doing that yet because they've got as many as they need. But the point is, or other people that, other pastors have called me and said, hey, got someone in our church. They just lost a child. Can you talk to them? And again, there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is I feel bad for you. Empathy is I know how you feel. And these believers in the early church, right, and, and here in this case, the Jews, they're going through these great trials, but in this case, they're following the true and living God. And because they're following the true and living God, they're not alone in their trials and their difficulties. And I want to encourage you all that you need not be alone. Put your faith in the Lord and you'll never have to be. Amen? The people living in the time of the Maccabees faced a choice. Follow God and experience difficulty or compromise and have an easy life. You know what? It's been said you can have a saved soul and a wasted life. We can fall into the trap of just going with the flow. Any dead fish can go with the flow, right? We can just be like the world and do what the world does and never rock the ship and just keep your faith to yourself and be an undercover Christian your whole life. Another day at work and nobody else found out I'm saved. Guys, we don't want to do that. You know, God has you where he has you for a reason. You're called to be salt and light. When you show up at work tomorrow, when you show up in your classroom tomorrow, the Holy Spirit just entered the building, and God wants to use you for his kingdom and his glory. And guys, we're not to keep it to ourselves. Amen? Amen. So point number one there of our outline today, mighty men with a spirit of antichrist will fool many with their flattery and claims of peace, but in the end, they're no match for almighty God. Antichrist Epiphanes ends up going down in flames. He dies. His life is over. Now, another king will take his place. So verse 36, we're going to jump forward 2,500 years in history, okay? Because it hasn't even taken place yet. So written 500 years BC, and we're in 2024 AD. It hasn't taken place yet. But we're going to see in the middle of this, talking about Antigua's Epiphanes, we're now going to talk about, and now keep in mind, when it was written, it was all future, right? When this was written, this was 300 years in the future, what we just read, and now we're going to skip to something 2,500 years plus in the future. Look what it says, and we're going to see the Antichrist, Satan's man, the last king of this fallen world, and we're going to first look at his character. It says, then a king shall do according to his own will. Now, it says in verse 35, at the end of it. Notice it says, he shall refine them, purify them, make them white until the time of the end. When you get to Daniel chapter 12, verse, in chapter 12, verse 4, it says, until the time of the end. So until the time of the end, and now we're in the time of the end. Okay, verse 35, it says, until the time of the end. And then the king, talking about in the time of the end. We're also going to see that these things that are talked about are things that have not been fulfilled yet. So we know that Verse 35 is the end of it because all those things were fulfilled previously by Antichrist, Epiphanes, and other kings. And now the things we're going to read have not taken place yet. So they are future events. And we know that again, and there's the cue that we're given there is until the end. Then it says there, then the king shall do according to his own will. So the seven-year tribulation period takes place before Jesus returns. It's known as the time of his wrath. Notice what it says there in verse 36. He shall exalt himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. So remember that when we were earlier in Daniel, it talked about the 77s, right, in Daniel 9. And each of those was seven-year periods, and 69 of them have been fulfilled, and there was one more seven-year period waiting. So if you quickly, Revelation, when you start the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, you have the church age, right? It tells us in Revelation, the things which are, the things which were, are, and things which are to come. The things which were, we have a picture of Christ in chapter 1. The things which are, the church age, chapter 2 and 3. Then when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, you see that John is called up, and the rest of the book of Revelation, we do not see the church mentioned again. Because the church age ends, chapter 2 and 3, you have the letter to the seven churches. Churches mentioned, I can't remember how many times, 20 some odd times. Then you don't see it mentioned again for the rest of Revelation because we're gone. So now, that's the period, this time of wrath. 
This time of God's righteous judgment upon an unrepentant and a rebellious world. Now, during this seven-year tribulation, God allows that to take place so that people can repent. He could have just wiped everyone out. He didn't do that. His desires of none should perish, no, not one. If you were here for Revelation from chapter four, from chapter four on, we saw all the, the things that were going to take place during that last seven years. And at the end of it, as we'll see in this morning's text, we will come back with him. Now, I want us not to forget and not to miss out on some of these attributes that we've seen of this Antichrist. Notice what it says there. The first one, I wrote it down, will exalt and magnify himself. So when you magnify yourself, you are being Antichrist-like. Amen? Two people said amen, the rest of you are full of yourselves. No, I'm right. No, I'm kidding. But how many of us don't have at least times when we magnify ourselves? Don't we? Come on. Yeah, no, I never. <laughs> Someone says, you, you know, you look, you look really beautiful in that dress. What was, I didn't hear what you said. Do you want to tell me that one more time? You're right. That's just mentality. <laughs> you know, we, we love to be flattered. We love to promote ourselves. We hate pride in everyone else, Right? And it's a mentality we can all struggle with. But notice the Antichrist will magnify himself. He'll speak greatly of himself. And this is what I think of when I look at a lot of politicians or a lot of other people in the world where they just they, they say stuff that is just complete and total utter nonsense. You know that it is, and they act like it's true. You know what I mean? And they just praise themselves and talk about how wonderful they are. You know, whenever I speak at a conference, they always want you to send a bio. And I can never do it. Because they want you to spend a bio. Well, I've been a pastor for this long, and I've done that. I just, I, I write sinners saved by grace. Just write that down. Because the reality is that we magnify him, not ourselves. That we give all the praise and the glory and the honor to him and not to ourselves. But what is the Antichrist going to do? He's going to magnify and exalt himself. But look what it says next. He will not only magnify and exalt himself, but he shall speak blasphemies. He shall speak blasphemies. Now, blasphemy, you know, it's, it's so tragic because it's become commonplace in the world we live in today. Blasphemy that is, a blasphemer is somebody who mocks the things of God, who speaks ill of, of the Lord and what he has done for us. And when I hear people take God's name in vain, it hurts. It makes me cringe. It really does. I was talking to someone on the phone a while back, and he took God's name in vain, and I just... Uh, and again, look, I'm, I'm not trying to be holier than thou. I'm certainly not trying to magnify myself, right? I just told you not to do that. But when you hear other people blaspheme the name of our Lord, the Bible says that the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. So words don't slip out. They pour out from your heart. Amen? And we see this in the heart of the Antichrist, that he's going to blaspheme the name of the Lord. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, and then blasphemy. The Bible even tells us it's in, you know, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Asaph wrote this in Psalm 73. Notice it says this, he says, he shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. So he, here's what's going to happen. It, it says there, he's going to prosper. So here he is, he's a blasphemer. He magnifies himself, and for a, quite a while, it's going to look like he's winning. And doesn't it bother you sometimes, even if you don't say anything, when you see wicked people doing so well? You think, why in the world, Lord? Why is that guy doing so well? He's a liar and a thief. What's wrong? What's up with that? You know? And you have this mentality, right? And we can fall into that trap. Here's what it says in Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Sometimes we can't believe the wicked get away with what they do. It doesn't seem fear, fair. But, but Asaph only struggled. It says in Psalm 73, 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them up on slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Guys, we get angry when wicked people get away with their evil deeds, but we ought to be sad for them because there's a day coming when they will face Almighty God. You know, the only judgment that matters is God's. You know, if, if men praise you, it means nothing if you're acting contrary to the Lord. I'd rather be cursed by men and praised by God than praised by men 
and cursed by God. It's not the judgment of men that we should fear or the praises of men that we should seek. It is only the righteous judgment of God that will matter in the end. In Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy the body and soul in hell. Do not envy those that are receiving the temporary praise of men, but will soon face the righteous judgment of God. You know what? We should pray for those people. Amen? Verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of our fathers nor the desire of women. He's going to, the Antichrist will be raised to know God at some level, and he will deny the God of his fathers. Many people believe that the Antichrist may be Jewish, which would make sense, because he is going to help in the rebuilding of the temple. He's going to help reestablish the sacrificial system. But notice He's going to have some attributes that are really popular today that will make him popular because first of all, he magnifies himself like everybody who's got followers on TikTok. Magnify, not everybody, but those who magnify themselves. Look how many followers I have and you, you base yourself on how many followers and likes you get. Guys, I, I need one like, his. Can I get amen to that? God likes it, praise God. That's enough. I don't need anything else. But what's interesting here, notice it says he has this God, he, so he's been raised with the truth, and he denies the God of his fathers. But notice this also. Look what it says here. He shall have no desire of women. What do you think that means? Homosexual. More than likely. Some have thought the desire of women, I think this is kind of a stretch, but some of the commentators said the desire of every Jewish woman was to be the mother of the Messiah. So what they're saying is he doesn't like the Messiah. Uh, it sounds more like he just doesn't like women. And guess what? Would that be a popular position to have today? People get votes for that. People line up behind it. By the way, we love everybody, but guess what? Sin is sin. Sin is wrong, and we have to stand against it. And that's adultery, that's fornication, that's homosexuality, that's lying, that's being prideful, it's all of it. Amen? We don't condone it, but we want to see people redeemed from it. So, very possible that it means, again, the Antichrist will be a homosexual. He doesn't have a desire for women. And again, in today's culture, that's a popular thing. He'll be, all -inclusive. He'll be the all-inclusive Antichrist. He shall exalt himself above all, it says there in the text. He shall exalt himself above all. In regard to any God, he shall exalt himself above them all. Second Thessalonians says, Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He actually will sit in the temple, proclaim himself to be God. He elevates himself above God. And every time I hear somebody mock the true and living God, and, you know, and we get it with scientists. Well, I'm a scientist, so I know better than God. No, you're just proving you're stupid. Because here's the reality. I just heard this debate the other day. You really believe that everything came from nothing? And the scientist said, yes. Game over right there. Law of biogenesis. Life, living matter does not come from non-living matter. And nothing cannot produce anything. Amen? But there's a mentality and there's an arrogance where we're smarter than God. Well, God is, a, you know, God is a crutch for weak people. Religion is a crutch for weak people. No, Jesus is a stretcher because I can't even limp into heaven without Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? And the reality is that there's this mentality that, that the Antichrist will have that he's smarter than God, that he's above all gods, that he alone is above everyone else, and he is the one who should be worshipped. It says in Revelation 13, 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It's only the world that will worship him. The people of God will reject him. Again, most of us will have been raptured already. Now notice this, verse 38, but in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his father did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. So a God of fortresses, what it's really talking about, his God will be his military and his comfort and his security, and that will be his God. And he will spend as much money as possible to be secure, to have a fortress that surrounds him, a mighty army that goes before him. And he will put his faith in his army. He will put his faith in his fortress. He will put his faith in his wealth. He will put his faith in his own pleasure. And that will be his God. 
That will be the God that he follows. And we need to be careful as a nation that we don't fall into the trap of, now praise God for our military. Can I get an amen to that? Praise God for them. But we don't put our faith in the military. We put our faith in Almighty God. We praise God for the military. We're thankful for them. We praise that God can use them. I believe in spending money on the military. I think it's a good thing. That being said, though, our hope is not, and our strength is not in the walls that surround us, but the God that upholds us. Amen? Verse 39, he says there, so he's, he's going to put his pleasure in pleasant things and it's in gold, and it says, and he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Who is this foreign God that will be his help? Well, the Bible is clear, we're going to read another text, that he will be possessed by Satan himself. So he is going to be pointing people to Satan himself. He will have a false prophet. We talked about this in Revelation, who's pointing to him and pointing to the God that he follows. It's because of Satan being indwelt by Satan. He will be charismatic. He will be smooth of speech. He will perform miracles. Many believe he will be struck down dead and raised from the dead. He will bring the world together. He will acknowledge and advance Satan's plan, and he will desire to be worshiped and to destroy all who will not bow to him. And how do we know that? Mark of the beast. If you don't take the mark of the beast during the time of the great tribulation, you will be basically signing your death warrant. You won't be able to buy and sell. You know, and again, it's so simple now with technology we have today. They talk about the mark being on your wrist or your forehead, and those are the, some of the thinnest places of your skin. And you know, you'll be able to walk into a store, walk out, and it'll just beep the, the chip on your hand. I think the technology is already here. And you can just walk out and it just charges your account. You don't have to have any money. But you know what? If, if, now, again, the chip in your chase card is not the Antichrist, okay? <laughs> not the mark of the beast. Like people call me, did you see what they did? They put a chip in my card. I'm not going to have cards anymore. You don't have to do that. It's okay. Because reality is when people take the mark of the beast, they know they will be aligning with the Antichrist. Amen? It's not going to be something that comes in the mailbox and you accidentally started. You took the mark of the beast. That's not going to happen. Okay? <laughs> I get those calls. Believe me. I get them. Did I take the mark of the beast? No, you didn't. <laughs> okay? First of all, we're all going to be in heaven anyway. We're not going to have to worry about it. Now, he's going to come against strong fortresses. He's going to align with the enemy. And again, if you don't follow him, your life will be put in danger. And then there in verse 39, he says, Thus she shall act against the strongest fortresses. And again, and uh, um, a, a foreign god but he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. He shall cause them to rule over many and divide the, the land for gain. So here's what we've seen. I didn't read them all, but he shall, look, he's going to exalt and magnify himself. Let's deny ourselves. He's going to speak blasphemies against God. Let's only praise his name. Amen? He shall prosper for a time, which means his focus will be on, on worldly riches. May we not have a temporary focus, but an eternal one. He will reject the God he was raised to believe in. I pray that if you were raised in a Christian home, you would embrace the God that you were raised to believe in. Amen? You will have not, desire of no, not have the desire of women. Uh, I love my wife. Can I get an amen to that? It's good to be married. God created marriage. It's a good thing. We should desire our spouses. He will reject God. He raised, and then it says, he'll have no regard for any God. So he's going to be an atheist um, just as well, right? He will exalt himself above them all. He will honor a God of fortresses, put his faith in his military and power. He will take the world with the help of his false God. He will be possessed by Satan, will advance, help advance his cause. He'll be charismatic, smooth as speech, will perform miracles, will have answers for the world's questions, especially in a time of tribulation. He will desire to be worshipped. He will seek to destroy all who do not bow to him, and he will reveal who he really is halfway through the tribulation. Now, Here's his battles. We'll finish up with this, beginning there in verse 40. Uh, the battles of the Antichrist. And, and the good news is we're going to see who wins in the last verse. So what it says there in verse 40, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But those shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So here's what's going to happen. He's going to go in and have the actual abomination of desolation proclaim himself to be God. 
He will gather them all together because of a, uh, an action of peace to join them together. He's going to rebuild the temple next to the, the mosque that is on the top of the temple mount. Somehow he's going to bring peace. Now remember, what's going to bring a lot of this about is the church disappears. Imagine this world with no Christians and no Holy Spirit influence. It's a mess with a remnant here. So when that, once that happens and the righteous judgment of God begins, the first three and a half years is not anything compared to the last three and a half. But as the judgment begins, they're all going to be panicked. We saw what COVID did. People were panicked. Imagine if there was worldwide famine. Imagine if a third of the world's population died in a single day. Imagine if 120-pound hailstones are falling from the sky that are on fire. I mean, things like that are going to be taking place, and they're going to be looking for someone with answers, and this charismatic guy is going to stand up, and he's going to have all these attributes, and they're all going to align under him, and he's going to get them all moving in the direction. He may solve a problem. He may have an answer for the famine. I don't know what it'll be. But whatever it is he has will bring all the people together, but then three and a half years in, he's going to proclaim himself to be God. And when he does, he's going to find some opposition. And they're going to come from the north and from the south. The people from the south, uh, the nations that are listed here, uh, Egypt and Libya and Sudan and Ethiopia, and it could even also be some of the, a larger alliance from the Arab countries. But also coming from the north, we know from Ezekiel 38, 37, 38, and 39, that's a good read, by the way. You might want to go look at that. Um, it talks about in this text here, the nations will come from the north and the east. Now, the north, most people believe it's Russia, and the east, most people believe it's China. So imagine, and it talks about you know, a 200 million man army, China, and this is way back when. So now that army is even greater in size. So imagine all this army is coming against the Antichrist. And he's got people coming from the south, and he's stationed in the middle. And this great war is about to take place. And they're all going to gather together to do battle. And they're all going to end up in a place called Megiddo. And if you've been to Israel, when you go up to Mount Carmel, where Elijah called down fire from the sky, you look out the back of Mount Carmel and you see the greatest platform for a great war anywhere on this planet. And it's the Valley of Megiddo, Har Megiddo, Armageddon. And it's in that place where these armies will come together to fight this one final battle. And as they're mounting up to fight each other, as the Russians and the Chinese, more than likely, are coming from the north, and you have others coming from the south, and you have the Antichrist and his army in the middle, and they're all gathered up to fight one another. Guess what's going to happen? Look what, it's, look what it says there in verse 44, but the news of the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury and destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas, the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Because what happens is, as they're about to fight this battle, Jesus comes riding back on a white horse with all of us riding behind him, having been in heaven with him for seven years. And when they are all together and they see the Lord coming, all of these enemies who hate each other so greatly will all turn united together to fight against Almighty God. And Almighty God will breathe in their direction and wipe them all out. Not going to be much of a battle. I'm on team Jesus. How about you? Jesus, I'll stand back here. Get him, Jesus. I'm just, I'm just going to be right back here. <laughs> Let me just hide over here, right? I'm just going to sit by. I can be, I don't care. I'll be on the horse in the back. I'll be wherever you want me to be. I just want to be on team Jesus. How about you? Amen? You know, I love the fact that even though there's a spirit of Antichrist that will reign for a time, in the end, God wins. Amen? The Antichrist is furious. He turns and moves. He's angry. All these people are whipped up. But Zechariah 14 says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. As they prepare for this great battle, Jesus returns again on a white horse. Let me read this to you. I know we're over by a minute, but let me read this to you to close. This is Revelation 19, 11 through 21. This is just good stuff. Amen. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was named Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like the flame of fire, and his head were on, many, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one, could, no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, 
His name is the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule over them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds to fly to the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that we may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses, and those who sit on them, and all the flesh of all the people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw a beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, who sat on the horse and against the army. Then the beast was captured with him, the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he had deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning and brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The enemy may win for a moment, but the good news is, in the end, Almighty God wins. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you that you are a great and an awesome God. And we are so blessed that we've been adopted into your family, that we're born again. You've given us a down payment on heaven and the person of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we do not rejoice in the death of the wicked, Lord. We want to see those who do not know you yet come to know you. Therefore, the grace of God goes to every single one of us. We're just beggars leading other beggars to the bread. Lord, we pray for revival. We pray for unsaved family members and friends. We pray for unsaved neighbors. Lord, we don't want to see them face the righteous judgment of God. We want to see them come to know you, to be born again. Lord, we pray for revival starting in our own hearts first. May we be salt and light to a lost and a dying world. And Lord, while the world hates, may we love. While the world is, is evil and angry, may we be kind, loving, and gracious. And may we always speak the truth, but do it in love. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. All God's people said... You see,